Hello, welcome to Profiles. I'm Adam Schwartz, and tonight's guest on Profiles is actor, director, author, composer, and new Indiana University professor, Robbie Benson. Robbie Benson has been acting professionally since he was 12 years old. On stage, he's appeared in such plays and musicals as Joseph Papp's production of The Pirates of Penzance. He starred in such movies as The Chosen, Ode to Billy Joe, Ice Castles, Tribute, many others. His voice acting credits include playing the Beast in Beauty and the Beast. As a producer and director, he's worked on feature films and more than 100 TV episodes of such shows as Ellen and Friends. He co-wrote the screenplay for the movie One-on-One and wrote the libretto and score for the musical Open Heart. He's the author of two books, the satirical novel of Hollywood, Who Stole the Funny?, and a memoir about his four open-heart surgeries. And I think our audiences would get a kick if you said the name of the book rather than me. <laughs> it's called I'm Not Dead Yet. Robbie Benson, welcome <laughs> to Profiles. Thank you. I guess this is a living testament that I'm not dead yet. <laughs> mm-hmm. You've just started a new chapter in your life. You've bought a house in Bloomington. You've started here on the faculty of the IU School of Telecommunications. Right. As a professor of practice, what does that entail, and what are your hopes and aspirations for what you want to accomplish here? Ah, that's a great question. I actually started teaching in the early 80s, but I started teaching full-time 24 years ago in 1988, and it was always my goal to see if I could teach film both from a very technical point of view and also a creative and artistic point of view uh, and bring students along throughout the years uh, to the point where hopefully they will pass me by and go out into the world as a new generation and, and understand the responsibility they have as storytellers. But also, it's always been my dream to bring a feature film everywhere that I've been teaching. Because I've been working while I've been teaching, so in my off days I, I, I work, I was only able to accomplish that once. But it was a remarkably satisfying experience for everyone involved. It was a little movie called Modern Love that Sony Video Software, when they were, it was before Sony was a studio and they were thinking about getting into the movies. And uh, Modern Love, all of my students participated in the film and they didn't participate like they didn't go in and get people coffee. Whatever we were teaching at that time and whatever they were interested in, uh, I would place them in those departments. So if they were interested in cinematography, they'd work in the camera department. Uh, design, they would be working in the art department. Wardrobe, obviously, you know. I mean, so it's really a great way to teach. And I'm writing a screenplay now because I'm. my goal is uh, to finish this screenplay and sell it and go into pre-production in time so that we can shoot it this summer and use a lot of my all the students who want to work on it, but really work on it and deserve to work on it and get paid to work on it. This is not freebie stuff. This is what I, I want them from the second they walk into my classroom to feel that their careers have begun that hmm. day. I've also, I, I must say this, because Bloomington and IU has kind of blown me away more than any other place I've ever taught, I am now co-writing this screenplay with a professor here. Her name is Susan Kelly. And I had finished the screenplay in 2007 and just let it sit on a shelf. And it got a reader's report somewhere as one of the best scripts they had read and they wanted to make it. And, you know, things happen like open heart surgeries and I, I put it on a shelf and I never came back to it. And I thought, you know, this really is one of my favorite pieces of work. So I dusted it off, and I asked Miss Kelly if she would uh, dive in and and help me rewrite this so that it could work here in Bloomington. And uh, 
she's been amazing. She's a she's a brilliant writer and a remarkable teacher. I sat in on one of her classes and just, you know, what I have come to expect here at mm-hmm. IU. So you're teaching filmmaking yes. here in the telecom school. Well, one class is filmmaking. The other class, we're doing a web series hmm. where all the kids are showrunners and writers in a writer's room. We have auditions, actually, uh, for our two main leads. And every Tuesday night, they will shoot a three-minute webisode, a satirical political comedy uh, that will air every week on YouTube. Wow. So you have a very hands-on approach. It has to be. The screenplay you're co-writing, will this be a feature-length screenplay? Oh, it's a feature, absolutely. And it's something that might get distributed? If it's in the realm of might, I don't think we'll get the money to make it. I mean, it's going to be a feature. It's, you know, it'll be out. I mean, you know, if we if we sell this, uh, you know, it'll hit the theaters. It who or, knows? It may hit pay-per-view, but mm-hmm. it, it, it'll be out there competing. Well, it'll be a great learning experience for the students, but whether that's it the gets point. distributed or not. We, well, you know what? It's got to be – no one ever tries to make a bad movie. We work so hard. And this will be an A-list movie. But the idea of bringing an A-list crew from L.A. and New York who are natural-born teachers – and what I mean by that is I always pick – my crew members by the way they handle people. So you'll be bringing in Hollywood professionals to work on the movie. And New York, yes. Mm-hmm. Hollywood and New York. And, and your role will be producer, director? Oh, I'll, I'll be writer-director. Okay. So the students will mostly be crew members. They'll be – they could be actors, uh, even though I don't teach actors here. But I do have a close relationship to the theater department, thanks to uh, Mr. Michelson, he let me sit in on the auditions, and we have theater department students coming over to audition in telecommunications. And, and my my dream here is to cross-discipline, reach across the aisle, so to speak. And, you know, in so many other universities where I've been, it's been extremely territorial. And what I'm learning here is that people actually love the idea that a student, let's say, in the School of Music who is learning composition and who wants to score movies actually works with a filmmaker and they are speaking the same language Mm -hmm. so that that doesn't begin for the first time when they leave here and they don't and they're afraid they don't you know they're they don't know what's going on yet. Whereas this gives them that jumpstart. Mm-hmm. And they get they all get to work together and speak the lingo and because there's a different vocabulary that we use in in film and there are different ways we tell stories and we all have to be on board and we all have to learn how to communicate with one another and treat each other with incredible respect that's the other thing it's how we treat one another so I want to teach a new group of, of filmmakers how to go out into the world and treat people with dignity. You've been teaching now for about 20 years, and it's clear that you really love it. Oh, I adore it. I live for it. I, I absolutely adore it. I, my, I literally, I, when I hear somebody say to me, somebody usually walks up to me and they say, you know, my son or my daughter, I don't understand them. They're, they're interested in this thing, and I, I, I'm not sure how to help them, and they don't know how, what to do, and I, that's when all the gears start clicking for me. That's when I just love to say, you know, they're creative. You know, send them my way. I mean, I, let me tell you what I would love. Instead of students going to places like USC, NYU, AFI, I would love them to start thinking about coming to IU to learn how to tell their stories. Because I think that this is a remarkable place, remarkable. And the faculty that I have become friends with, they should be teaching the students I had at NYU, and I wish I could transport my students from NYU here, and I don't want to get in trouble for this, but there's just so much passion here. There's true passion for for the students. Every faculty member I talk to, listen, when I, when I have spoken to the provost, what comes out of their mouth 
is so different than all of the other places I've been. The first sentences always have to do with what is best for the student. And that's bliss for someone like me. You have many facets to your career. Let's talk a little bit about how you got started in acting. My sense is that your parents have been a very big influence on you. Yes. In what ways? In all the good ways. My father is an incredible writer, brilliant. He's a, he was a comedy writer, but he also can, he wrote a novel called The Place Where Nobody Stopped. He's also written um, comedy material for some of the best. He at one time was working with Woody Allen and Joan Rivers when they were just writers. Um, he's brilliant. My mom uh, is a remarkable actress. Uh, she stopped acting for a while and went to work for Merrill Lynch and started teaching women how to take care of their money. My mom went back to work as an actress just recently and got one of the starring roles in Betty White's Off Their Rockers, which is great. And my mom is fantastic in that show. But what's also so funny is that I've directed Betty White. So I adore her. So I told my mom what to expect because she's such a good soul. She's her, – her comic timing is probably as brilliant as anyone you'll ever find. You know, just everything she does is so priceless. But my mom can stick with her. You got started acting very young when you were 12. How did that come well, about? Well, actually, I, I started when I was six. I was in Summerstock Theater when I was eight because of my parents. My mom would go to the Red Barn Theater in Saugatuck, Michigan – and she would star in a season worth of plays. And I loved the camaraderie of theater. I loved being able to help park the cars, then go hand out programs and in intermission sell lemonade. And then uh, there would be some shows where they would allow me to do the follow spot. And we'd all help strike the sets and get the new sets up. Uh, and they would always let me feel empowered and as if I was a part of the crew. And one year when I was uh, eight or nine, I was one of the little kids in uh, The King and I. And then the following year, they were doing Oliver. And I asked uh, my mom if I could audition for the part of Oliver. And she was playing Nancy. And they looked at me skeptically and they handed me the script. And my mom said, you have to do this professionally. It's not because you're my son. You're going to have to fight for this. And I said, I'm on. Let me have the script. Now, back in the day, I had a photographic memory. And I came back about two hours later and I said, here's the script. And my mom and dad looked at me and they went, well, I guess you're not ready. You just don't understand what it takes. And then I started reciting the entire script, everyone's lines, and started singing everyone's parts. And it just came so naturally to me. Mm. And then when I was on stage, that was the beginning of my education. Because in the theater, you have all of these great people from directors to actors who have been doing this forever. And you talk about passion. We want to do eight shows a week because we feel... There's always something to improve in every show. You know, people ask, well, doesn't it get stale or boring after two or three years of doing a show? And the answer is absolutely not. Each audience is different and you're trying to tailor the show so that the audience has the best experience possible. But you're also aiming at certain parts of the show each night that you know you can do better. So I started, you know, I played the part of Oliver when I was about nine or ten and then I went to Japan and was in – a touring company of Oliver. It was the original cast from London and the kids were from the United States and my mom came along not as my chaperone but as the understudy to Nancy because they used the real Nancy from, from London. And then when we came back, I auditioned for Broadway shows and when I was 12, I auditioned for Delbert Mann, this brilliant director, and Ed Bagley, senior who I only knew is always the bad guy in like 12 Angry Men or all these great movies. So even at 12, I was afraid of him. I didn't even, <laughs> I didn't understand the difference because there he was, you know. 
But I went out and I auditioned and and I loved it. And on st- I was more I was more at home on stage than anywhere else on the planet. Mm-hmm. And I got, and I got the starring role in uh, a Broadway drama called Zelda at age twelve at the Ethel Barrymore Theater with Lilia Scala and Ed Bagley Sr. And then did the Rothschilds, uh, the original cast is Solomon Rothschild with Hal Linden and uh, King Curtis when I was 14 at the Fontaine, And then was supposed to do another Broadway show when I was 15 to 16 called Dude, which was one of the great failures by Rado and Ragney who had done Hair. Ooh. And it was their next musical. But I got... I got the title role in a small film called Jeremy. So I had to buy out of my contract. And I did the movie called Jeremy, which very small movie, but it won a, an award at the Cannes Film Festival. And Truffaut called me and Glennis O'Connor his American parfait. He, he, he fell in love with the movie and, and he really loved us. We were incredibly lucky. Let's take a break and play some music that you've chosen. What have you chosen for your first piece? Thank you. Well, everything I do, I dedicate to my wife, um, including T-shirts that I wear. My sneakers have her name on it. I live for her. We've been married 33 years. We met on stage. She took over for Linda Ronstadt in Pirates of Penzance and played Mabel. I was Frederick. We got married eight shows a week. She means everything, everything to me. And having said that, I wrote a song for her um, that's in the, the show that I wrote that made it to New York, and it's called Forever. forever composed and sung by our guest on Profiles, Robbie Benson. Let's talk a little bit about your memoir, your experience with four open heart surgeries. Your book is called... I'm Not Dead Yet. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, you call it a memoir. I. What would you call it? Well, I don't want to be arrogant. I don't want to, like, go, I'm going to write my memoir because it's important and people need to read it. So I've been calling it, because I have to come up with something, so I've been calling it my medical memoir, because I wrote it for only one reason, what's only one, and that's for my cardiac brothers and sisters out in the world, um, because I've had four open heart surgeries. And there's a lot to learn. You know, open heart surgery is, uh, especially when I had it, when I first had it, um, over 30 years ago. It's a completely different operation now, even though they still have to saw you open, in my case. And I was born, I don't have heart disease. I was born with a congenital valve problem. For those in the know, I was born with a bicuspid aortic valve instead of tricuspid. But it's turned into, my heart has turned into kind of a science experiment because of all of the necessary surgeries needed. So I decided I needed to tell my cardiac brothers and sisters out there, uh, old and young, whatever I have learned from these experiences. And the reason is because when I had my first open heart surgery in the 80s, and I was acting then and doing very well, but my career came to a screeching halt because 
Hollywood doesn't want to hire a young leading man who's had open heart surgery, especially, you know, the boy next door. I mean, the boy next door with open heart surgery, it just doesn't, you know. Plus, uh, unfortunately, for a while, I was uninsurable, which means no one's going to take it because of your heart condition. Because, you know, the the irony of it is that after my first open heart surgery, my heart was actually healthier than it's ever been, Mm -hmm. but because. On my records, it said I had open-heart surgery. The insurance companies for the big Hollywood studios would not insure me at the time. So I had to reinvent my life. And having open-heart surgery, there's a, a stigma that comes along with that. And I don't care what business you're in, what walk of life. And there are other things that come with open-heart surgery, such as things that most men don't like to talk about fear, depression. There's even post-traumatic stress syndrome um, after some have had it after one. Um, I was diagnosed after three. So I thought because people kept getting in touch with me and and I became consumed with it. I became consumed with trying to help anyone I possibly could. If they found me. It didn't matter how they found me, if they emailed me. Um, Now, one of the reasons I'm on Facebook is because I love if people write to me and they ask me about open heart surgery, I try to give them my thoughts and try to steer them in the right direction as far as maybe the best, even the best websites to go to, to learn more about it, the best doctors that I know of. Um, anything I can do to help. Obviously, I'm not a doctor and never played one on TV, so I can't, you know. But you've learned so much. There's an episode in your book yes. where you talk about correcting a physician yes. to his face, and you were right. Um, unfortunately, that happened to be true. You've also described some pretty harrowing experiences, waking up after one of your surgeries with your hands tied, for example. See, most hospitals will either untie your hands after your tubes come out and usually you're awake by then, they don't want you to wake up and start pulling tubes out of your lungs or your your nose and, you know, places they shouldn't be, other places too. And so in my book, all I say about that is information is key. Education is key. Ask your doctor. Ask your surgeon. Are my hands going to be tied down? When I come out of surgery, I want to know. And on the scale of smiley faces from 1 to 10, it's like spinal tap. This is an 11. (laughs) You know, it's like, whoa. So I wanted to explain that in my book so that future open heart patients can go in and ask their physicians. You can order my book on Amazon or, you know, as a paperback, but I wrote this book as a multimedia iPad iBook so that there are places you can touch on your iPad and it takes you to the website where you can go as deep as you want. You can learn as much information as you want. You can also listen to songs if you're in the hospital and you need to calm down. There are slideshows with my pictures of nature, my nature pictures. They're not in black and white. They're in beautiful color on the iPad. There are movie clips that we got from studios when I'm talking about certain films. So I actually never wrote this to be published as uh, as an actual manuscript, whereas my first book, Who Stole the Funny, was published by HarperCollins, and it was a bestseller. But I didn't want this book to ever come out in manuscript form. This book was supposed to be for people who were either in bed at the hospital who wanted to learn, or that poor person, maybe even more of a helpless person, is the person who's sitting in the chair next to the bed. Because it's really easy to go through the pain. What's hard is to imagine it. It's so hard to be a loving family member or or a, a, a child, a, a wife, a, a mother, a father, to sit in that chair next to the bed all night I wanted that book, if a, if a doctor comes into the room and quickly 
sums up the operation and says what's going on and then leaves. And all you can remember are a couple of words that he, that he or she said. I wanted that patient to be able to go into my book and be able to type something in and go to a website and learn what did that surgeon just say? What does this mean to us in our lives? How can I be proactive? Do I have to believe that every doctor who walks in here is a genius and my wife, my husband, my daughter, my son is the most important patient to them? Because that's just not true. They have too many obligations. And sometimes they can be wrong. So what does it hurt to educate yourself and to be able to ask a question and to say, please stay in here for one more. Answer this question for me, please. Explain it to me in terms that I can understand, please. That's why I wrote the book. Mm. You've worked with such extraordinary talents throughout your career, Ed Begley, senior and junior. And well, junior, and which junior. was wild. How so? Uh, I did a pilot two years ago with Ed Begley, Jr. and showed him a picture of his father on stage with me in wardrobe and I was leaning against his chest and I was only 12 years old. And it brought tears, literally brought tears to Ed Begley Jr.'s eyes. What brought tears to his eyes? The fact that he was seeing his dad. And here I was at the time, I'm 57 now, so I was 55. And he and I have navigated this this show business world, this the world of the arts, and we were still here, still doing what we love to do. And there's a picture of his dad who had passed away. And here I was standing next to him. And, you know, our legacies, as small as they are, they continue. And it was exciting for both of us, but it was very sentimental. And it meant something to both of us. Of the other people you've worked with, Burt Reynolds, Gene Hackman, Rod Steiger, do any memories stand out in your mind? Well, I love, I mean, I love Rod Steiger. He was he was one of my greatest friends. He also had the stigma of trying to hide the fact that he was a heart patient. He was a great guy. And his friends were incredible, too. I'm very, very shy, painfully shy. I, I almost never go to a party because I make other people uncomfortable. You Even, make other people uncomfortable? Yeah, because I just don't know what to do. And so it makes other people uncomfortable. I just stand there and don't know what to do. If I'm in a classroom or if I'm working on a set, oh, my God, I'm unstoppable. And, you know, it's like this is what I know how to do. I do not know how to be social. And that's probably because I started working at such a young age, never had an iota of a social life. But I would never miss a gathering that Rod Steiger had because of Jonathan Winters. We would always sit next to Jonathan Winters and we would just, Carla and I would sit there and just know that we were sitting next to probably one of the greatest comic minds in the world and we would just let him go. We'd, we'd get him started on, on a, he would say, how long have you been married? And we'd say something like 28 years and he would go, Get out now. It doesn't get better. And his wife, would, his wife would stand up and storm away from the table. He was just – you just couldn't stop him. Once he got started, he was so funny. It just re- remarkable man. Speaking of marriages, you've been married for 33 years yes. to Carla DeVito, who's also in show business. Well, she's the talented one. I do the best I can with the talent I've been given. She's literally, she's been touched by, by whoever touches you, the, the, the gods of art, the gods of talent. You know, she, I mean, her acting ability, her comic timing and modern love is brilliant, but her singing, she was the young lady who in the video Paradise by the Dashboard Lights with Meatloaf, she's the young lady who sings with Meatloaf's tongue down her throat um, in that video. But she's had 
solo albums, uh, she is the most brilliant singer I have ever, ever heard in my life. She has absolutely no ambition, which just brings me to my knees because every day that she doesn't sing to me is is a crime against against that talent. And I'm trying to get her to record a solo album now because I'm also um, a recording engineer and have a, a, a little home studio and we can do pretty good work there. As a matter of fact, some of the stuff that you're listening to uh, came from my I played on all of this stuff and uh, I engineered it and um, produced it and you know and that's not out of talent that's out of necessity so um, and also if, when you amortize if this is what you love to do it's also out of being cheap and being frugal um, having your own little studio especially nowadays in the digital world is not an outlandish proposal Let's take a break for another selection that you've chosen. This is a song called Run to You that, again, I wrote and produced all for my wife, uh, Carla DeVito. Lovers, take your marks. That was Run to You, composed and performed by our guest on Profiles, Robbie Benson. I want to ask you about athletics, because athletics have been a very important part of your life. Yes. You are a very serious athlete. <laughs> well, it's nice that you call me an athlete. I think at one time, I always wanted to play Major League Baseball. And at one time, I, I was kind of being groomed and, and was groomed because I, I was actually born in Dallas, Texas. And... You know, baseball and uh, football is, you know, th those are the sports. Football first, obviously. Now, basketball, I never thought that day would come, but Texas has a basketball program for the last decade or so that is really, truly competitive. Obviously, nothing like Indiana. But, you know, the University of Texas was uh, where my dad spent some years as an athlete, um, a student, and at one time when the veterans were coming back from the war, he was he taught English. Um, and you wrote a screenplay with your father, Jerry Siegel, called he, One on One. Yes, when I was eighteen, about, when I was eighteen, I, I wrote a script called One on One about basketball, because we were living in New York then, and in New York, even though we have the Yankees and the Mets, basically you don't play baseball; they play something called slow-pitch softball, this high-pitch thing. And as a kid, I just didn't understand this high-pitch softball. So I became a basketball player. So I wrote this script called One-on-One. -on -One. And when, it's, when it was about to be sold to Warner Brothers, um, I knew that if I got Jerry Siegel, my father, involved, we could nail this down. We could make this sale because he is so amazing and he could help polish this script and rewrite it with me and we'd have a really really great solid little movie and that's what happened we got lucky and uh, a father and son sold a script and made a movie it was fantastic is there a connection between athletics and the performing arts absolutely absolutely we're all on stage when those kids run out on the field uh, or onto the court, that's entertainment. Um, yes, they do it uh, with their athletic skills, but they're entertaining us. And if you look at uh, the revenue, um, whether it be college athletics or pro, pro sports, um, 
just think about what ESPN is paying for the rights, you know, for their football games now. And you realize the kind of money that Major League Baseball, the NFL, you know, universities, uh, you realize it's what kind of businesses they are. The one thing that I love here, and I had the good fortune of meeting not only with the provost, I also had the really good fortune of meeting with the athletic director, Fred Glass. These people truly care about the athletes here. Their goal is to have a student athlete be as as successful in athletics as they can be in academics. That's their goal. That's not a cynical, from a cynical point of view. Whereas you go almost anywhere else that where I've been, and that would be a cynical statement. Someone would go, "All oh, right, yeah, sure." They mean it. They they care. So you know. That's one more reason I feel like I found the right place to be. Let's talk a little bit about your experiences as a director in Hollywood, directing episodic television. In the 1990s, you were a sought-after director for television. Yeah. Then you got out of it. Then you wrote a satirical, a scathing satirical novel yes. about the industry. Yes. When we watch a sitcom such as Ellen or Friends, as you, as you have directed, it looks as if it were fun to make. But my guess is it was not as fun to make as it is to watch. No, they're not fun to make at all. As a matter of fact, what's happened is that in the days where sitcoms were actually funny, going back to I Love Lucy or All in the Family. Um, they're not funny anymore? Well, you know, there are there are sitcoms that are funny. and if And if they are, it's because they... They have a vision, and when I say a vision in this particular sense, I mean funny lines come out of the right character's mouth. Um, people know who these characters are. Back in the day, there were a handful of people involved in the process, like when I first started, so that when something was funny in the writer's room, it got to me and it was funny to me and it and I made it funnier on the stage with the blocking and then the actors made it funnier with the way they delivered it and then we shot it in a way that made it funnier and it was all the same vision that came from the one writer who sat down and wrote that one funny line or funny scene. Nowadays, everything is by committee. And when I say committee, I mean it even goes up to minutia notes coming from executives at the studio and network ex level as well during the process of being creative. And that's not a healthy creative process. What did you learn about making people laugh? Well, that's never been a problem. I, I, I think I was put on this earth to make my sister laugh. My father is, you know, a comedy writer. It's in our genes. It's just genetic. If I have to make a point, I won't make the point by trying to scare you. I'll make a point by trying to make you laugh. How do you do that on a television episode? Well, that's easy. You find the funny. And, and funny becomes a noun, really. And funny is, you know, as a human being, I'm pathetic. I, I make mistakes. I make mistakes that we all make. Now, you put me in a situation, which is a comedy, a sitcom, you put me in a situation where a human will behave a certain way and it's a way that shows how flawed I am and how others will react to seeing that flaw and then how we try to cover that flaw and how others around us, sometimes the reaction shots are much more important than the actual line or funny moment itself. It's the reaction of what's funny, too. It's how we all behave. We all knew how when Lucille Ball would be in the candy factory and all of a sudden the candy started coming faster and faster, you know, how is she going to make this work? That's a human problem. It's humanity. We all understand. It just gets funnier and funnier because we understand 
how to take it from point A to point Z based on humanity, on who we are as human beings. That's why it's so important that when someone writes a funny line, that that character is established. That character has a, a, an arc. So those words, just because it's funny, they can't come out of somebody else's mouth. If you think about All in the Family, if you wrote a line for Rob Reiner, it shouldn't come out of the mouth of Carol O'Connor. You know how Carol O'Connor is going to react to Meathead and vice versa. So that, as they sang, those were the days. I mean, that's, you know, that's what made things funny. Now... You hear about showrunners being egomaniacal. They have to be. You hear horrible stories. They have to be. Why? Because they're fighting for their babies. They know that if this show is going to be a success, they have to fight for their original kernel of what they thought was funny and see it all the way through from when they thought of it in the shower to the writer's room, down to the floor, through the producer's run-through, through the network run-through, through the camera blocking, and through the show itself, and then back into the editing room. And that's what we fight for. And that fight became almost like being Sisyphus. It was like that, that rock's going to roll right back down the hill. There is no chance anymore. And that became the state of comedy. And unfortunately, because of that, we got reality shows. Mm. And if you really want to know the truth, that's how you can track where did all this horrible stuff come from. It came from the fact that situational comedies were no longer funny and they were expensive to make and the talent was expensive. And all of a sudden, we could find real human beings and their human stories. We could unfortunately laugh at them and laugh at their situations that they were getting into. And that became our sitcom. And we've taken it to its ridiculous extreme. Bad sitcoms gave us the world of reality TV. So your book, Who Stole the Funny, is not much of an exaggeration? It's, as a matter of fact, I had to pull back. People go, wow, you know, man, you you must have really been riffing on this stuff. And I went, you know what? I had to pull back or I thought no one would believe it. I had a hard time believing some of the characters that you portray. You would the producers, never. There such is a, jerks. There is a – yes, jerks is, is such a nice way to put it. There was actually a time – there's something in the book that's true and I will – and – uh, everything is kind of – everything is based on truth and I put it together in a way so that it, it is – it's fictionalized uh, so that people can have fun with it. Could you offer any insights into your acting technique? Do you have a technique, an approach? Absolutely. First of all, I say always honesty, always. Uh, your work must be honest. But how can you be honest? You're dealing with a fictional situation. You're speaking someone else's words. You've got 35 crew people around you. Right. And that's the craft and the skill of what we do. And that's why people either go to college to learn the skill and the art form of acting or they go to classes to learn it. But, yes, with all of that going on, you take this character and you absorb that character and you become that character and then you behave as that character and you do so honestly so that if it's a performance you can be proud of, there aren't moments that are dishonest. Even there are sometimes I look back where I did something dishonestly because I wanted to make someone laugh and in truth the character wouldn't have done that. And it's like shame on me. I knew better. I shouldn't have done that. But people love it. They laughed. But I know that, you know what, they might have remembered the movie in a different tone or even remembered it more fondly or better if I had played the moment, that one moment, more honestly. What role or project are you most proud of? I'm very proud of the movie The Chosen because it was very hard to get that movie off the ground. And Chaim Potak was a brilliant writer. It was a low-budget movie at the time, a period piece. And it had everyone working 
for favored nations, which basically means we were almost working for free because we wanted to make the movie. But I have to say, I have to go back to one-on-one only because uh, – two movies, one-on-one because I worked with my father and we beat the system. A father and son actually beat the system, which was beautiful. And at 18, I, I sold a screenplay to Warner Brothers. And the other movie that I'm really proud of is Modern Love because I made that movie not only with Carla DeVito but with my students at South Carolina. You know, and we made it for a very small amount of money. And even though it's a flawed film, it's really worth watching and people stole from us. All of this uh, baby boomer stuff that you see now um, in – movie after movie or sitcom after sitcom. There are a lot of things we did in that movie that were done for the first time. And I'm not speaking arrogantly. This is just a fact. I'm very proud of the things that we did in that movie. You you have a successful Hollywood career, an enduring marriage of 33 years. You're close to your children, not at all the typical Hollywood type, totally down-to-earth. I'm just curious about how you have managed not to be a Hollywood type, such a, a down-to-earth human being. Well, you're, you're very kind. I'm a remarkably flawed human being. I, I think many things have helped me help shape my life. My parents lived their lives with such integrity and decency and, and taught me to go out into the world uh, the way that I should treat people no matter Look, I've seen people who are very famous mistreat other people, and it's just an ugly sight. And usually the people they mistreat are so vulnerable. It's just not right. Secondly, facing death so many times. I've had nine major surgeries in my life, four of them being open heart. So facing death all my life and knowing I've had this all my life is very humbling Having the roller coaster career that I've had is very humbling. But right now, I think being married to Carla DeVito is the most grounding thing that any anyone who's fortunate enough to know her would understand. You know, just being with her is such a privilege. Are you still close to your, your parents? Yes. As a matter of fact, they're coming out to visit. To tell you how much I adore Indiana, my dad needs a cane to get around. And I went on StubHub and bought tickets for the Penn State game because I knew he would love to go. And I thought, but how am I going to get him comfortably to his seat? And then I found out that there are these golf carts that help people who are not able to to move well like my dad to help get them from the car to the stadium. And it's not like, oh, because you're special. It's because you have trouble moving. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wow, I haven't been someplace like that before. And maybe it's my inexperience. And again, it's the fact that I don't get out a lot. But, but that's really cool. That's so compassionate. Talk a little bit about your children. Well, my son just finished making his first feature film as a director, writer, producer and star and I composed the music for the film and executive produce it but because I had him sit next to me because I wanted it to be his score not my score I wanted him to like everything in the movie we take a co-composing credit on it together Um, it's called Straight Out of Tompkins we just finished the mix And it's going out right now to distributors and studios to see what festivals it can be in. And uh, hopefully it will get distribution and it'll be in a theater near you or it'll be on pay-per-view. But it's a remarkable accomplishment for a 21-year-old. My daughter is a brilliant screenwriter, but she also writes lyrics and she sings. And so I made an album with her and I wrote music for her, for her poetry. And she sang and I engineered and produced along with Carla her album. And so it's fantastic. I mean, she's really brilliant. She, she's, we call her our spiritual healer. She's just pretty amazing. 
You mentioned a screenplay that you're co-writing that will be produced in one of your filmmaking classes. Are there any other projects that you want to work on in the future? Yes. It'll, I'll always be writing music, always, and I'll always be writing a screenplay. And I'll give you a very quick example of what, I'm, what I, my, my very ambitious goal is. It's to try to make a movie, one movie a year here during the summer um, and to include my students and hopefully uh, as it grows here, um, as many people in the community, as many vendors in the community, as many artists in the community, and also as many artists and creative people at the university, which also includes things like entertainment law, the business department, um, marketing, musicians, the School of Music. We would be fortunate to have someone from the School of Music. So that's my my hope. It, and my hope is also to help Indiana realize that they need, in their film commission, they need a tax incentive like other states to bring probably the most green production entity into their state. A movie comes in and spends millions and millions of dollars in a community. It's a green production. They leave no footprint. They just spend money here. It's a creative in endeavor. But the state will lose production because let's say let's say my screenplay says um, in the cornfields in Bloomington, and that's where I want to shoot it. And some producer comes along and says, if I put my money into this, I want every penny up on screen. So I want to get 15 cents back on the dollar in that tax incentive to bring all of my millions here to Indiana. So you know what? We're making this movie in Iowa where I can get a tax incentive. Well, they don't have that here. And that's foolish. And and it, it is. It's downright foolish. And they should. Now, I will fight or even not go with that particular producer and even put this film in jeopardy of not being made in order to make it here in Bloomington and in Indiana. But why? Why should I lose a producer who's ready to sign a check, a studio that says, we're ready to make this movie, but we could go to endless states and get a tax incentive, a reason to make this movie in that state and to spend 15 to $30 million there. Why does Indiana not compete? That blows my mind. That should change. We need to bring this conversation with Robbie Benson to a conclusion. I'm Adam Schwartz. I've been speaking with actor, writer, composer, and new Indiana University professor Robbie Benson. Please join us again next week on Profiles. Thank you, man. Thank you, Adam. The program you just heard was recorded in September of 2013. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.